You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we It's Monday, November 15th, 2021, people. Hope everybody's having a great day. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hope everybody listening, not a Texas Longhorn fan, tough weekend to be a horn. We will get into a lot of the Texas mishaps of the weekend, but we will open, obviously, look, as much as I'd love to start with Texas, we will open with Oklahoma. They lose to Baylor. That is the biggest result of the weekend. We'll talk about what went wrong, why I was surprised, not that Oklahoma lost, but how it happened, and what it means now for Oklahoma. Uh, a little bit of a QB controversy maybe at OU. Most importantly, what does it mean for the playoff picture, not only for Oklahoma, but for the Big 12, as well as the national scene. I should also mention, by the way, I will hit on two, three, four other teams who either survived severely helped, severely hurt, or completely eliminated themselves from the playoff picture because I believe there's at least two teams that we are not talking about in the playoff picture that we need to be as teams that could potentially play their way in. From there, we will take a quick break. And yes, we will talk about Texas losing to Kansas as a 30-point favorite at home. I cannot believe this is happening again. No, it doesn't mean Steve Sarkeesian is a disaster, but I do think it brings up some interesting conversations about what's going wrong, what's so bad about Texas. And I actually think there's an interesting parallel between what is happening at Texas now and what could happen at Michigan down the road where Jim Harbaugh again has won nine games and is going for 10 games over the next two weeks. We'll talk about that. Finally, we will wrap with a little college hoops. How about this? UCLA Villanova, an instant classic Friday night. Some of you may have stayed up. Some of you may have completely fallen asleep on, uh, in bed. That's fine. I will recap. I was there. It was awesome. Also, speaking of Texas, Gonzaga lays waste to Texas. The Chris Beard experiment off to a tough start in Austin. Doesn't mean I'm quitting on my horns. Just saying it is a work in progress. And by the way, credit to Gonzaga. With that said, though, enough beating around the bush. Let's get to the topic of the day. And listen, like I said, as much as I would love to talk about Texas, all their stripper monkeys, and everything that has gone wrong in Austin with this football program over the course of the last five weeks, the real topic of the day is the fact that Oklahoma went to Baylor coming off a bye at 9-0 and 
in complete position to make a run at the college football playoff, and instead they lose. Final score of that game is 27-14. to Oklahoma falls to Baylor. They fall to 9-1 overall. Was not without a little controversy at the end as Baylor's fans storm the field. Baylor's fans have to be rushed off the field because there's still one second left on the clock. Dave Aranda kicks a field goal. Lincoln Riley gets mad. But ultimately, that's not really the story coming out of this game. The real story is that Oklahoma does indeed take its first loss of the year. And what I would say about Oklahoma specifically as we get into this, one I don't think any of us are really that surprised that Oklahoma took this loss. This was a team that really struggled at the beginning of the season, really um, you know, has been up and down, peak and valley, ebb and flow. But what I don't think any of us thought was that Oklahoma would lose the way that they did on Saturday. And to explain why, let me kind of get do a quick deep dive on Oklahoma football this year because it really has been a tale of two seasons at OU. Before Caleb and after Caleb, BC and AC over there in Norman, Oklahoma. And the reason why is pretty simple. Prior to Caleb Williams making his debut against against Texas, Oklahoma was obviously undefeated, but there was no doubt that they were struggling offensively. But to their credit, they were actually playing really good on defense, okay? So you, you, you beat Nebraska in week three, but the final score is 23-16. The offense struggles, but the defense bails you out. A week later, you beat West Virginia, 16-13. Offense struggles, but defense bails you out. Kansas State, you're able to move the ball a little bit better. And then Texas happens, and then you realize that Spencer Rattler, this offense needs a jolt. You go to Caleb Williams, and the offense absolutely takes off like a rocket ship. End up with 55 points and over 600 yards of offense against Texas. Then Caleb Williams takes over permanently. 52 points against TCU, 35 against Kansas, but really we all watched that game. Kansas played this insane slowdown style of play, and then he put up 52 points against Texas Tech going into the bye. And so what's been interesting about Oklahoma is that really outside of maybe their final game before the bye against Texas Tech, excuse me, they really haven't put together a complete effort, a complete game on both sides of the ball. Early in the season, really struggled offensively, but the defense carried them. Later in the season, the offense just putting up points like it's nothing. 55 against Texas, 52 against TCU. Again, 35 against Kansas, 30, uh, 52 against Texas Tech. But then that's when the defense starts to struggle. 48 points against Texas, 31 against TCU in a Kansas game where Kansas actually outgained Oklahoma. And so I bring all this up to just simply say this. I think we all thought that Oklahoma was going to be susceptible to a loss. I don't think any of us thought it was going to go down the way that it did in Waco, where as good of a defensive mind as Dave Aranda is, it's also worth noting that as I talked about on Thursday's show, Baylor has not been an elite defensive team nationally this year. They ranked in the 50s, so right around the middle part of college football in terms of total defense. And so when we thought about what an Oklahoma loss might look like, I think we all thought that at some point they could lose 41 to 38. I think we all thought they could lose 38 to 31. I don't think anybody thought that with Caleb Williams now at quarterback that Oklahoma was going to lose a game where their offense could not get the ball moving, only that is exactly what happened on Saturday afternoon as Oklahoma finishes with 260 yards of offense, by far the fewest of the Lincoln-Riley era. The last time they put up less than that in terms of total offense was the final game of 2014 in a bowl game. That was when uh, I believe Lincoln-Riley came in the next year as the offensive coordinator, and then 
then from there, he took over as the head coach. And so I just bring it up to say, I don't ever think any of us thought that Oklahoma's offense can look that bad. And what I will say is this. One, we could all see Oklahoma losing, but not in that scenario. Two, what I would also say, we couldn't see him losing in that scenario where the offense struggles, where Caleb Williams, it's worth noting, by the way, really, really, really struggled. 10 of 19 passing. Uh, he actually got benched briefly for Spencer Rattler in a minute. And so now, now that we know what happened, Let's talk about the bigger picture of what this all means because I do think there are two really kind of fascinating things that are going on with Oklahoma right now, one involving just the big picture playoff stuff, what does it all mean, but two, the quarterback position. And the first part is exactly what I want to start with the second part first, and it's exactly what I just talked about. The idea that in one game, I actually believe that Lincoln Riley, the, the offense was not only set back um, from a, a literal perspective, but I also think from a figurative perspective as well, because to me, the big story isn't just that Oklahoma lost. I think they can rally to win the rest of their games, and we're going to talk about that scenario in a minute. But he now has, I think, a very fascinating situation in his quarterback room, right? Because Caleb Williams, when he came in against Texas, there was no doubt he was the better quarterback. He, there's no doubt that he was the better fit. And there was really no doubt, at least coming externally, we don't know what was going on in the locker room, but it seemed like the team rallied around Caleb Williams. This was the guy they wanted under center. Now you've got a weird situation where Caleb Williams doesn't get the job done. You go to Spencer Rattler for the spark. Spencer Rattler doesn't give you that spark. Now what do you do if you're Lincoln Riley? Now the good, and, the, and the, the, the bad news, I would say at this point, is that it's not as though you're going to have bad defenses to get both of these guys' confidence up against. You got Iowa State next week, which really struggles to score, but they usually play pretty good defense. And then on top of that, you got Oklahoma State, which I don't think we all realize how good Oklahoma State is right now. And so I'm not saying it's quarterback controversy. It's a disaster. But what I am saying is you got to think that Caleb Williams' psyche is a little bit hurt coming out of that game the first time that he's really struggled at the college level. I expect he didn't struggle very much at the high school level. So how does he bounce back going up against two other really good defenses in the coming weeks? But now you had that ace in the hole in Spencer Rattler, the, the, the breaking case of emergency. Now, I don't know that barring injury, you can go back to Spencer Rattler at all because you started him early, you benched him, it's clear he wasn't the guy. To Spencer Rattler's credit, I think we can criticize a lot of people for a lot of different things. He's been a trooper. He stayed in the program. Obviously, him and his camp, his family, his co his quarterback coaches, whatever, I'm sure they're trying to figure out what his um, opportunities are after the season. But he's done everything right. He stayed with the team, and he stayed with the program. But now, you put him in. It doesn't light the spark that you, you want. You immediately pull him after a series or two. Now... I don't see the scenario where you can put Spencer Rattler back in for this team unless something happens to Caleb Williams in terms of injury, which we don't hope. So I'm just saying, Lincoln Riley, this is almost a worst-case scenario for him because you have the battered psyche of Caleb Williams coming out of this game, and I think Spencer Rattler, and this is no disrespect, I don't know him personally, I'm not saying that I can get into his mind, I think it's got to be really, really, really tough uh, for him this morning because of the fact that he has now had two opportunities. His coach pulled the trigger on him twice. His coach pulled him out twice. And now it's like, coach, you know, I've been a good trooper. I've done what was asked of me. I, you know, you bailed on me again really quick. So I'm just saying, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with the quarterback position. 
What I also think is interesting is it completely changes the dynamic of what the playoff picture looks like for Oklahoma going forward in this college football playoff race. Now, let me say one thing really quick. Um, first off, I heard a lot on Saturday of Oklahoma, they're out of the playoff picture. Even Joel Klatt, who is about as sharp of a college football mind as I've ever met, I know Joel a little bit. He actually came on this podcast years ago, like episode four or five when I first launched. But I just bring it up to say, I heard everybody say, well, Oklahoma, they're out of the playoff picture now. I'm sorry, I don't see it. If Oklahoma wins out, that's the important part. If they win out, the only scenario I could see Oklahoma not eventually playing themselves back into the playoff picture is if Alabama were to beat Georgia, meaning that Alabama runs the table and beats Georgia, meaning that we have two one-loss SEC teams. Alabama would be the SEC champ. Georgia would have been the SEC best team all regular season. And if both Ohio State and Oregon run the table to both finish 12-1 and as the Big Ten champ and the Pac-12 champ, respectively, that is the scenario where I just don't see how you could possibly move Oklahoma ahead of any of those teams. But if any of the other scenarios happen if Oklahoma if, if Alabama loses in the SEC championship game if Ohio State were to take a loss in the next two weeks to either Michigan Michigan State or even in theory in the Big Ten championship game or if Oregon were to lose at some point if Oklahoma wins out I do believe they'd be in the college football playoff picture so I don't like this oh it's over well we said the same thing about Oregon Oregon's currently number three in the college football playoff poll right now and so if Oklahoma wins out uh, I think they will be okay I think two things, though, are really kind of questionable with them going forward. One, do we really think they're going to win out? I mean, this was a team, this was the first real defense that they basically played since Nebraska, really struggled to move the ball, had no answers, and it's not as though the schedule gets any easier going forward. They play this coming Saturday against uh, against Iowa State at home, and I know Iowa State had a tough weekend against uh, against Texas Tech this weekend, but Iowa State still has the number two uh, total defense in all of the Big 12. Uh, they still play real defense. They still play a slow tempo. They're in the top 10 nationally, I should mention as well, in, in terms of total defense, and they are going to do what they can do to keep Caleb Williams and this offense off of the field. After that, you have an Oklahoma State team, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, which is really, really, really good. Nobody's talking about them. Another elite defense, the number three total defense in all of college football. How about that? We talk about how bad all these Big 12 defenses are. Oklahoma State is number 12, or number three, excuse me, in terms of total defense nationally in college football behind only Wisconsin and only Georgia. And so I bring all this up to say, one, I don't really see the scenario where Oklahoma wins out. Even if they win those two games, they would have to play Oklahoma presumably again in the Big 12 championship game, and I don't think that's going to be an easy go of it for them. And it's also worth noting, I think the other really interesting thing about Oklahoma is this. I'm just really fascinated to see what the committee in general does with Oklahoma, and here is the reason why. Oklahoma coming into this week was the number eight team in the most recent college football playoff poll. Okay, that is, of course, the poll that decides the four teams that go to the college football playoff. But what was interesting about it was it really felt like the reason that, and listen, we, we bashed the committee for everything. I think the committee actually got it right in keeping Oklahoma at the bottom of the top 10 as an undefeated Power 5 team because they clearly hadn't played the best teams in their conference. I've said it a few times. 
Oklahoma was the only undefeated team coming into Saturday in the Big 12. The numbers two, three, and four teams in the standings were the three teams that Oklahoma had not played yet prior to Saturday. And so they are going to be tested going forward. And I thought the committee did a good job and a smart job of keeping them outside of that upper, upper, upper tier. Don't reward them for being okay but not great against bad competition. Make them earn it. Maybe at one point they surpass Cincinnati. Maybe at one point they surpass all these Big Ten teams as they start to play each other. Maybe at one point they even surpass Oregon as a Pac-12 champ or Ohio State as a Big Ten champ. But you can't do it right now. You can't do it under that scenario. And so I bring it up because I give the committee credit for that. But I also think the committee, and we have to always think too, the committee does stuff with other stuff in mind. I told you last week, I think the reason the committee put Michigan ahead of Michigan State this week is to just let everybody know that, hey, if it comes down to a one-loss Ohio State versus a one-loss Oregon for that last spot, we have already set the precedent that we're willing to move teams that have head-to-head wins against each other. And so I bring it up because with Oklahoma, I believe that the committee was setting itself up, hey, we're going to do the right thing. We're not going to take flack for having Oklahoma way down in these polls, but guess what? Once they start beating all these teams in their conference, we can jack them right up. We can shoot them right past these Big Ten teams. We can shoot them right past Cincinnati. Maybe shoot them past Oregon if we absolutely need to. What I don't think the committee took into account was what happens when Oklahoma loses the first real marquee game of their season, and what do you do with them now? Because Oklahoma was number eight coming out of this weekend. They they now, I would suspect, fall behind Notre Dame, who is number nine, Oklahoma State, who is number 10, Now, the advantage is uh, Texas A&M at number 11 has lost. Wake Forest is at number 12. Baylor is at 13. So I I can't see Oklahoma being ranked ahead of either Notre Dame or Oklahoma State at this point, especially since Oklahoma State has a head-to-head win over the Baylor team that Oklahoma just lost to. Texas A&M loses, so that helps. And so you start to question, does Oklahoma fall to number 11 ahead of Wake Forest? Are they behind Wake Forest, a one-loss ACC team? And what does the committee do with Baylor, who will now have a head-to-head win and be the highest-ranked two-loss team in this playoff poll going forward? And so I think it's something interesting to consider. I think it's something interesting to think about. But this loss for Oklahoma just will plummet them down the playoff rankings, and they're really going to have to play well to rise back up. Now, again, I do think if they win out, the committee will find a way to put them in. Sorry, Cincinnati fans. Sorry, Oregon fans. Sorry. Like, the committee wants, college football wants, if we're being honest, ESPN wants the biggest names, the biggest brands, whatever. They want Georgia. They want Bama. This is why I'm frustrated with Bama at number two. The committee is already setting up a scenario where if Bama loses to Georgia, they keep them in that final four ahead of a Cincinnati or ahead of a, a somebody like that. And so I just bring it up to very simply say, Oklahoma is by no means out of the college football playoff picture, but I am absolutely fascinated to see what the committee does with them on Tuesday night because they should really be no better than about 12 or 13 in the next poll, maybe as low as, yeah, probably about 13 would be about the bottom of where they could go, but that could be a lot of ground for Oklahoma to make up going forward. With that said, Oklahoma is not the only team that had an interesting Saturday in terms of the college football playoff rankings. And so we kind of talked about what Saturday's loss means for Oklahoma. Now let's look at what every everything else that happened and how all the puzzle pieces fit together in terms of the college football playoff. Because I do think there was a couple interesting results that are worth discussing. And I do think there are a couple teams that are probably on the outside looking in that aren't quite far as outside as you maybe think they are coming out of what is now week 11 in college football. And as we are very much in the middle of November heading towards the home stretch of the sport. 
First of all, what I would say is the top of the sport, not much changed. Georgia was Georgia. They were awesome. How about my dogs? <laughs> Love my dogs. Uh, they are now 10-0. They beat Tennessee. And I'll say this. This was the week, right? We talked about it on Thursday, Friday show, was the idea of what happens against this Tennessee offense. Can Tennessee hit these big plays? And for half a second, it looked like Tennessee might be the kryptonite to this Georgia defense. They're up 10-7 at one point. Then all of a sudden, Georgia does what they do. They completely clamp down. And from there, Georgia pulls away. They win 41-17. From there, everything else pretty much stayed the same. And it's really interesting because I actually heard Andy Staples from The Athletics say this the other day. This is a weird year where it feels like just it feels like, OK, Georgia's clearly number one. And then after that, it feels like there's nobody really for like that two, three spot. And then there's about seven teams that should be from about four to six. And that's kind of what it feels like this week. Alabama obviously took care of uh, New Mexico State pl- uh, eat plenty easy on Saturday. I don't really believe they're the second best team in the country, but when you look at Ohio State, when you look at Oregon, when you look at Michigan, Cincinnati, it's hard to justify putting anyone other than Alabama at the number two spot. Oregon stays at number three. Ohio State stays at four. Cincinnati, five. Michigan, six. Michigan State, seven. Oklahoma, the first team at number eight that has lost and that really shakes up the playoff picture going forward. So the top part is pretty much status quo. Not a ton changed, and I don't think a ton will change the next time that we get a new playoff ranking on on Thursday, on Tuesday, excuse me. But what I will say is there are a few results that did matter on Saturday, and there are two teams that are essentially eliminated from real contention. And then on top of that, there are two teams that I really think we are not talking about nearly enough that I don't know necessarily that they get in, but they are a lot closer to the picture that I think most of us realize. The first one, we just spent a ton of time talking about Oklahoma. We have spent zero time on this podcast, and I think most of the national media has spent zero time talking about Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State's a really good team. They are currently ranked number 10 in the college football playoff poll. They sit at 9-1, and and I think what's stunning about them is that in a Big 12 where nobody can stop anybody, one, Baylor looked awesome. We'll talk about Baylor in a minute. But two, on top of that, They play real, real defense at Oklahoma State. I I think you'd be blown away to hear this. In terms of Oklahoma State's defense, they currently rank number three nationally in total defense behind Wisconsin and Georgia. We don't think of anyone in the Big 12 being good enough to play defense at that level, yet Oklahoma State, all these great defenses that we think of, Michigan, uh, Washington has a great defense, even though Jimmy Lake is a complete disaster and he might be fired by the time you listen to this podcast. Um, You know, you go on and on and on down the list, and I just bring this up to say Oklahoma State plays real defense. They are now, again, third nationally and eighth in scoring defense, and so to me, they're a lot closer to the college football playoff picture sitting at ten at 8-1 and one and number 10 in the country than a lot of people realize. I don't think people realize just how good this team is, just how well they're playing. And what I would say about their playoff chances, I do think it's kind of similar to Oklahoma. I think if they win out, if they're a 12-1 and one Big 12 champ, the only scenario I could see them not getting in at all is if Alabama beats Georgia, both teams finish 12-1, and one, and then Oregon and Ohio State both finish 12-1 and one as well. Or maybe there's another big, uh, big 10 team that finishes 12-1. and one. I should mention that. Michigan, Michigan and Michigan State are both uh, sitting at 9-1 and one right now. If either of them wins out, it would include a head-to-head win over Ohio State. They would finish 12-1 and one and they'd be in the playoffs. So the only scenario I can really see Oklahoma State, like Oklahoma, not getting in the playoff if they win out is, that, uh, is the scenario in which 
Alabama beats Georgia, and one Big Ten team finishes 12-1. and Oregon finishes 12-1 and as well because Oregon will still have a great head-to-head win over Ohio State. So for Oklahoma State, they are in the driver's seat. They are in control. And I would argue in some ways, I think it's actually more likely that Oklahoma State uh, makes a, a real run here late in the season than Oklahoma. One, they're a more balanced team. They are a team that has been, uh, you know, kind of the same. There haven't been the ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys of Oklahoma this year. I would say, obviously, the ceiling of the offense isn't nearly as good. But at the same time, you also can't discredit that through 10 games, again, they are 9-1 playing real defense and are seemingly playing their best football. They are taking care of the teams that they're supposed to. The last three weeks, 55-3 to against Kansas. Yes, we'll be talking about the Jayhawks in a minute. 24-3 at West Virginia, 63-17 against TCU. The same TCU that beat Baylor, by the way. So for Oklahoma State, they still have Texas Tech next week on the road. Then they close with Oklahoma. And then almost certainly, as long as they beat Texas Tech, they will be in the Big 12 championship game. The question is, if they beat Oklahoma... Then they would be playing Baylor in the Big 12 championship game. If Baylor wins out, if they lose to Oklahoma, they would go to the Big 12 championship game, but obviously have less to play for. But I will say, Oklahoma State is very much in this playoff picture. If they win out, I think they're going to finish somewhere in the top four, top five, something like that. The other team that is also in the playoff picture, I should mention, by the way, with Oklahoma State, I could see the scenario where if they went out, they pass Cincinnati. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I could see the scenario, though. The other team that no one is talking about, they're the one team from a power conference, if you want to call it as such, that I don't believe can pass Cincinnati, and that is the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And I know they don't play in a conference, but spare me. You get the point that I'm trying to make. But Notre Dame, I'll just say this. I don't think they'll pass Cincinnati if Cincinnati wins. But I think Notre Dame is a lot closer to the college football playoff picture than anybody realizes, and nobody is really talking about it. Notre Dame is currently sitting at 9-1 overall. I don't think people realize the fact that Notre freaking Dame, everyone says Notre Dame's overrated, you guys talk about them too much. Is anyone talking about the fact that Notre Dame is 9-1 and and that their only two games remaining are Georgia Tech at home this weekend and then Stanford on the road to close the season? Stanford, by the way, is 3-7 and right now. Georgia Tech is 3-7 and right now. So for everyone who says, all you guys talk about Notre Dame too much. Notre Dame is 9-1. and one. They are wins against a 3-7 and seven Georgia Tech team and a 3-7 and seven Stanford team from finishing 11-1. and one. And again, they're number 9 in the country. They will move up to probably number 8 this week because of the fact that Oklahoma lost. They're a lot closer to that college football playoff picture than a lot of people realize. Now, what I would say with Notre Dame is a few things. One, I think they're a really good team. I also think this is kind of the scenario where you can kind of make the case that we really don't have to expand the college football playoff. Notre Dame's good, they're talented, they're fine, but even Brian Kelly would say this isn't one of his best teams, and so, you know, in a 14 playoff era, I don't think anybody will be that upset, including Notre Dame. I think if, if you told Brian Kelly, you finish 11-1, but you don't make the playoff, in this year, after everything they lost off last year's team, I think he would gladly take it, but what I would also say about Notre Dame is this, I do think they have some inherent hurdles that they have to overcome that nobody else in the top 10, including either Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, have to deal with. One, As I just said a minute ago, they're the one power conference team, if you want to call them that, I'll just say they're a power conference team for the sake of this conversation, that I don't think can pass Cincinnati if they win out. 
Cincinnati obviously has a head-to-head win. If Cincinnati finishes undefeated, it will be very hard to justify moving Notre Dame past them, especially because Notre Dame's schedule has not worked out the way that they thought it would when they scheduled this, this, this schedule. USC is not very good. UNC was a preseason top 10 team that is, is falling fast. Purdue is good, but not great. They're sitting at 6-4. and four. Florida State is sitting at, what, 4-6. and six. And so this clearly isn't a schedule that is going to allow you to leapfrog Cincinnati. I'll also say... I do think this is the year where not playing in a conference could hurt Notre Dame. Is it fair? Is it right? I do not know. But what I will say is I think most years people make the, oh, they have to play. This is why they have to be in a conference. This is why they have to be in a conference. Need to be in a I say no. It works out better for them. They make a boatload of money on TV. They get to play a national schedule. If Brian Kelly wants a presence in Texas to recruit, he schedules some team in Texas. He wants a, a presence in California to recruit. He schedules a game in San Diego. Wants a presence in the Northeast. So the point I'm trying to make is I've never believed this narrative that Notre Dame has to be in a conference, but I will say this might be the year where it's an exception, where the, the wins that they have are not as good, where they are behind the eight ball on all these other teams, and they obviously have that tough, tough loss to Cincinnati, which I don't know that they'll be able to overcome. But what I would just say with Notre Dame, I think they're a lot closer to this playoff picture than a lot of people realize. If Oregon loses, if Cincinnati loses, if these Big 12 teams beat up on each other, don't be stunned if Notre Dame, as an 11-1 non-conference champion because they don't play in one, makes the college football playoff. There were two teams, I thought, really quickly to wrap up the playoff conversation, then we'll get to the craziness at Texas that I thought kind of hurt their college football playoff chances. The first one is Texas A&M. And I, I don't remember if I talked about it on Friday's show, but they were the kind of the two-loss team that was lurking in the background that I said, you know, I don't think they're quite out of this yet. Um, and it was funny because last week I started to see the, the first kind of rumblings of would a two-loss Alabama team make the college football playoff? And I said, wait a second now. If Alabama loses to either Arkansas this coming weekend or Auburn in the Iron Bowl, Texas A&M was, prior to this weekend, slated to go to the SEC championship game. They would have surpassed Alabama with the head-to-head win. And so I bring it up because Texas A&M did not win on Saturday, and with their loss, coupled with a loss by Ole Miss, there is essentially no scenario now where Texas A&M goes to the SEC championship game. They would need Ole Miss to lose, uh, I guess, two more times, and they would need Alabama to lose twice. And I just don't think that is going to happen, considering that one, Ole Miss has Vanderbilt, and then two, Alabama, I don't believe, is losing both of its final two regular season games. And so for Texas A&M, I thought they were an interesting team that was on the outside that we probably should be paying attention to, but their playoff run is officially over. The only question now is do they get a New New Year's Six type bowl game, whether it would be the Sugar Bowl. It sounds like the Sugar Bowl probably would not be in play for them at this point. Ole Miss would have the advantage there. Maybe a Fiesta Bowl, something like that. But AM just a crippling loss for AM. And the final team from the playoff picture that I would just talk about very briefly, I guess it's Baylor. Because what I would say about Baylor, I, I, I don't know how Baylor fans should feel today. I think on the one hand, you are over the moon. You just beat Oklahoma. You've played them tough through the years. Baylor is a real football program now that in the last decade has had three different head coaches all perform at a really high level. Art Bryles, we know what happened with him. Matt Rule now with the Carolina Panthers. I may be talking about him next week. when we, we'll, we'll do some more coaching stuff next week. And then Dave Aranda, who is, of course, now the head coach at uh, Baylor as well. But I look at Baylor and I say this. On the one hand, you should probably be over the moon about what happened on Saturday. Celebrate, storm the field, have a great time, live your best life, all that stuff. But Baylor is one loss to TCU last week 
from being right back into the college football playoff picture. And I just think that's something to think about. If Baylor just takes care of TCU last week, they are going into this week probably in the top 10 for sure, maybe as high as seven or eight, depending on what the committee decides to do. And they have a direct path to the college football playoff. Now, instead, they will, of course, finish at best, I guess, 11 and two. I mean, they would need some help to get into the Big 12 championship game. But they are really just that one loss from TCU last week from being right in the driver's seat to make a real run at the college football playoff. All right, so what I want to do, take a quick break. A lot of college football playoff talk. I want to come back. You know what I want to talk about. I want to talk about those Texas Longhorns. Cannot believe what happened to Texas on Saturday with the loss to Kansas. We will discuss that coming up. Do a little college hoops. I will be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. And I do want to talk about what was unquestionably the single most interesting result that came out of Sunday, Saturday in college football. Excuse me. Wasn't the biggest result. Biggest result was obviously, look, it was Oklahoma losing to Baylor. What does it mean for Oklahoma? What does it mean for the playoff picture? What does it mean for the Big 12 picture? What does it mean, by the way, maybe for the Heisman race with Caleb Williams? That was the biggest result of the weekend. I would argue Texas A&M losing was probably number two. Somewhere after that, Michigan surviving against Penn State, Ohio State, whatever. Doesn't really matter. Those were the biggest results of the weekend. Yet the most interesting result, unquestionably, came from Austin, Texas. Where the Texas Longhorns came into Saturday on a four-game losing streak, trying to avoid their first five-game losing streak since 1956. The good news? They had Kansas. Kansas, the Big 12's whipping boy in football. Basketball, they're awesome. But the Big 12's whipping boy in football. Kansas is coming to town. There's no way Texas can lose to Kansas, right? 30 and a half point favorite, no doubt. They might not cover the spread, but they will, they'll, they'll, they'll crush Kansas. Instead, what happened? Kansas comes into Austin. Kansas comes into Darrell Royal Stadium. Final score in overtime, 57-56. Kansas gets the win in one of the most shocking upsets of the season. What was crazy was it was live in the Fox Sports Radio studios while I was doing my radio show. There was nothing fluky about this game. It's not like there was bad weather, there was a million turnovers, there was a bunch of crazy injuries. Kansas actually led 35-14 to 14 at the half. They were up three touchdowns at halftime. Texas had to rally just to force overtime. Texas had to rally in, and score a touchdown in the final minute to get it to overtime. On top of that, even in overtime, Kansas had to convert a two-point conversion to win in the first overtime. So it is crazy, it is unbelievable, and a Kansas team, which has been a whipping boy for the Big 12 for the better part of 15 years, just went into Texas and got the win, okay? First of all, to even contextualize how big this is, I know Texas has been bad forever. They haven't been this bad. And some of the stats I'm going to tell you will absolutely blow you away. Kansas coming into this game was 3 and in their last 62, let me just put it this way, because I'm going to trip up my numbers and I'm going to yell and scream and get mad at myself. In their last 62 games coming into this game, Texas was, or Kansas, excuse me, was 3-59 and 59 in their last 62 Big 12 games. They are now 4-59. and 59. So, so just think about that. 3-59 and 59 in their last 62 Big 12 games, we play nine games a year. You do the math, that's about eight, eight and a half seasons. 
three and fifty nine, and they just got a win. This is only their their fourth win in sixty three Big Twelve matchups. Here's the crazy part, though: of those four wins, two of them have come against Texas. That's right. Don't forget Charlie Strong. The the loss that basically torpedoed and ended the Charlie Strong era at Texas was a loss at Kansas. So Kansas, which has four total Big 12 wins in their last 63 Big 12 games, two of them are against Texas. On top of that, here's another stat for you. Since 2010, Kansas has only beaten two teams multiple times. Texas is one. Central Michigan is the other. How about this? And this one was the one that really kind of blew me away. Kansas has not won a Big 12 road game since, are you ready for this? They've not won a Big 12 road game. Listen to what I'm about to say. They have not won a Big 12 road game since 2008. We're talking 13 years. We are talking it is so long ago, it was the George Bush administration. George W. Bush was the president the last time Kansas won a Big 12 road game. It was so long ago, Nick Saban has won six national championships. Great stat via Matt Brown from The Athletic. Six national championships Nick Saban has won since Kansas won a Big 12 road game, and they just did it on Saturday night in Darrell Royal Stadium. And here's the crazy part to me, okay? This is the part that truly blows my mind, truly boggles my mind. It is the fact that, yes, it's Texas, and you should never lose to Kansas. But this Texas team specifically should never lose to this Kansas team for one simple reason, okay? Let's talk about Kansas for half a second. Lance Leipold's doing an incredible job. But this is not a Kansas team that is in year three or year four of a rebuild and they're starting to show a little bit of life. I know they played well against Oklahoma State the other day, or Oklahoma the other day. Kansas, never forget, actually has a less longer tenured head coach than Steve Sarkeesian. Steve Sarkeesian has been the head coach at Texas longer than Lance Leipold has been the head coach at Kansas. Kansas, of course, was coached by Les Miles. He gets in trouble. He's being a creep. He's texting and talking inappropriately to girls uh, in the office, in the workspace, whatever. He gets fired in March. Lance Leipold does not take over until April 30th. So Kansas did not have a football coach until April of this year. Most of their best players hit the portal. He didn't get to go through spring practice, and he still went to their Royal Stadium and got the win. I mean, you're talking about just insanity. This is, and I know we love to poke at Texas, but this is absolute insanity. And so with it, I've, I've done enough kind of setting up in a foreplay, if you will. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Let's just talk about the game itself. And, and four things really come to mind when I'm thinking about this loss for Texas from the Texas perspective because I think that's the question right how do they continue to hit new lows how do they continue to hit rock bottom how does it continue to get so bad and I have four thoughts on that one let's just stop with the fire Sark stuff like like I don't know if Sark's the guy 10 games in we got to stop with the fire Sark stuff two I would also say can we stop blaming the players and to be clear I know what happened this week. I know that one of these knucklehead, excuse my language, but craphead, shithead, whatever you want to call it, one of these shithead players recorded Bo Davis uh, screaming and yelling at them. And I had no problem with Bo Davis doing it. I actually like that Steve Sarkeesian stood up for his coach. But I am so tired of all of these Texas coaches complaining about the players. The last three head coaches, Charlie Strong, Tom Herman, Steve Sarkeesian, it's the same excuse when they come in. 
Well, the culture's terrible. Well, we got kids that don't love football. We got kids that are all focused on the stars and the wrong thing. It can't always be the players, okay? First of all, if that was the problem in the Mac Brown era, then you would think that Charlie Strong fixed it by recruiting the right kids. If Charlie Strong didn't fix it, you would think that Tom Herman fixed it by recruiting the right kids. If he didn't fix it, Steve Sarkeesian, you got to figure it out, okay? Because you go back across college football, it shouldn't be this bad, and you cannot blame it on the players. Nick Saban, yes, he struggled in year one. In year two, he had Alabama at number one in the country. Urban Meyer, you can criticize Urban Meyer for a lot. He doesn't blame the players when things go bad. Remember the story that Joshua Perry, Big Ten Network, told on this podcast. He said that when Urban Meyer walked in, first day of practice or whatever it was, and I'm paraphrasing Josh Perry, you can go back and listen to the interview, but he said it on this podcast, so it's not like I'm keeping state secrets here. He, he told Josh Perry, he said, you're, you're not good enough to play for me. I would have never recruited you if I had the opportunity. But you know what? You're here now. Let's make it work. And I don't know if Urban Meyer was saying it because he wanted him to transfer, because he was really hoping that he wasn't going to play, whether he was being honest, whether he was trying to motivate him. But here's the truth. Urban Meyer took that same player that he told would not, he would not recruit. He had him for four years in the program. He was a key part of winning a national championship. Urban Meyer made it work. Urban Meyer went 12-0 and in his first year at Ohio State. You can't keep blaming the players for everything. Number three, what I would also say, and I think these last two are kind of corresponding, I think it's time to admit Tom Herman wasn't the problem. I think two things in life, what do I always say? Two things in life can be true. Two things in life can be true. And I think with Tom Herman, two things can be true. I don't think he was the guy to bring Texas back. I don't think he was the long-term answer. I actually talked about it when he was fired, but interesting story. Uh, Taylor Estes, who covers this team as well as anybody covers the Texas Longhorns, um, she came on my radio show, and she talked about how Tom Herman had lost touch with the players. He, wasn't saying, he, was, he was walking past them in the facility without making eye contact. He was aloof. And I'm not saying that he was the right answer at Texas, but he was not the biggest problem at Texas, okay? Last year, Tom Herman went 7-3. and three. I don't think people really, like Tom Herman wasn't bad last year. And of the, se- they, they go seven and three. Keep in mind, they didn't even play Kansas. So if they had played Kansas, they would have been eight and three because Kansas was terrible last year under Les Miles. They would have gone eight and three. If they had played a regular out-of-conference schedule, at worst, we're talking about a nine and three type team. What I would also say is of the seven and three record, like we think of Tom Herman as this absolute train wreck disaster. Seven and three last year in a COVID year, no spring practice, no nothing. And it's also worth mentioning, the three losses, loses to Oklahoma in double overtime, loses to TCU by two, loses to Iowa State by three. Easily could have been eight and one, what, what would it be, nine and one or eight and two in a COVID year. I'm not saying Tom Herman was the answer, but he is not as big of a problem as people give him credit for. Don't know that I would have kept him. Don't know if Steve Sarkeesian is going to be better or worse, but we got to stop blaming all these coaches. We are now on the fourth coach, third coach since Mac Brown. we got to stop blaming the coaches, and I'm going to tell you what the single biggest problem with Texas football is right now. It's not Steve Sarkeesian. It's not the players. It wasn't Tom Herman. You know what the single biggest problem with Texas football is right now? It's the fans, and it's the fan base. And it sounds mean, and it sounds terrible, but I'm just going to say, and if you want to get mad at me, Texas fans, you want to threaten me, you want to say mean things in the YouTube comments section, whatever. I'm just going to tell you the truth. You guys are the biggest problem, and you guys need to back off and let the football people do the football stuff. Like Tom Herman. I'm not saying Steve Sarkeesian is the definitive answer, but the idea that we have any idea or proof after 10 games is absolutely insane. 
You have to let Steve Sarkeesian do his job. You have to let his coordinators do what they were paid some of the biggest salaries in college football to do. You cannot keep shaking up this coaching staff. You cannot keep demanding new head coaches. You cannot keep demanding that those head coaches shake up their assistant coaching staffs. You cannot do it. You have to let the program build some continuity. You have to let the program develop under a head coach. You have to let that the assistants develop under the head coach. You have to let the players develop in the schemes of the system, of the assistant coaches as well. You cannot keep shaking this up because this is the problem and this is why you're here is that every six months, every year, you want to reshake this thing and roll the dice again. And at some point, you got to stop. And I think this is something that is really interesting to me in college football that I think we might see a little bit of a regression in the next few years is I think we have been so quick to fire everybody that I think sometimes at some point these administrators are going to learn we just have to bite the bullet, we just have to deal with it, and we have to give a guy enough time to figure out if he or she, not he or she, he is the answer or not. I'll give you an example. Florida State. Florida State is basically Texas of the Southeast, Texas of the Panhandle. Jimbo Fisher leaves. The program was declining when he was there. I will not deny that. They bring in Willie Taggart for a year, year and a half. Don't give him a fair shot. Fire him by the end of year two. Then they bring in Mike Norvell. Last year was a disaster. It was a COVID year. They start, what, 0-4 this year, I believe, was what they started at. And everybody wanted Mike Norvell gone. And it's like, at some point, you just got to let the guy coach. And to Mike Norvell's credit, I think they've actually been pretty good. They started 0-4, but you lose to Notre Dame by three. You lose to Jacksonville State on the final play of the game, not excusable. Um, And you lose to a good Wake Forest team that we didn't know was good at the time. Since that 0-4 loss, it's 0-4 start, they're 4-2. And I would say, overall, they are 4-2 in games where their starting quarterback, Jordan Travis, is fully healthy. And so I know I'm going off the the, the reservation here talking about uh, Florida State as opposed to Texas, but if you're Texas... Like, at some point, you just have to back off. At some point, you just have to give somebody a little bit of breathing room. You have to allow them to make mistakes. You have to allow them to learn on the job. And you have to allow them to grow and evolve on the job. I'll say this. I talked about it on the show last week. I give Nebraska a ton of credit. I don't know if Scott Frost is really the answer. I think some of the mistakes should have been corrected at this point. But to be this close to be right on the cusp at Nebraska of almost beating Ohio State, almost beating Michigan, almost beating Oklahoma, almost beating Michigan State. At some point, you just have to let a coach do his job and really know. And so Nebraska, rather than reshaking things up and starting over from scratch when the foundation is already built, they're giving Scott Frost one more year to be like, okay, is it really the players? Is it really the scheme? Is it really just we can't get over the hump? Or are you the problem? By the end of next year, we're going to know if Scott Frost is the problem or not, and we're going to let him go. And it's the same with Texas right now. And I know nobody's saying, nobody realistically thinks Steve Sarkeesian is going to get fired this year. But what I do think I'm already hearing is you got to change the defensive staff. You got to do this. You got to do that. I'm not saying that Pete Kwiatkowski, the defensive coordinator, is the definitive. I'm not saying he's Mike Elko. I'm not saying he's Nick Saban. I'm not saying he's Kirby Smart. I'm not saying he's the best answer. But what I am saying is this. I hope Steve Sarkeesian holds his ground. I hope if he believes that he has the right coaches on his staff that he's going to let him let them do their jobs. And I will give him credit. He stood by Bo Davis last week, and I'll be curious to see what happens this offseason. Because right now, Texas is at 4-6. and six. They just lost to Kansas. They've lost their first uh, – they're on their first five-game winning st- losing streak since 1956. 
And what I would finally say is they're going to have to beat West Virginia and they're going to have to beat Kansas State to go to a bowl game. And so whether they go to a bowl game or not, 6-6 six and six we know is not acceptable in Austin. And I'm curious if he stands by his coaches. I'm curious if he makes change because if he starts making change, that whole cycle just starts all over again and maybe we see ourselves in a situation like we've seen Texas over the last couple of years again. I'm not saying Steve Sarkeesian is definitively the answer. I'm not saying there aren't problems internally. But stop blaming the coaches and stop demanding that the coaching staff gets shaken up every two or three months. That is not the right answer in college football. All right, last little thought on Texas, and I'll be perfectly honest. At first glance, this thought really will appear to have nothing to do with Texas at all. And you'll probably sit there and think, what does one have to do with the other? So just bear with me. Let me talk for about four or five minutes, and I think you'll be able to see how I get from point A to point B and how I connect these two thoughts that seemingly have nothing to do with each other together. And that thought is this. Texas, as we just spent a ton of time talking about, they lost to Kansas on Saturday night. Embarrassing loss, historically bad loss, whatever. When Kansas's players were celebrating on the field after they won that game, I could not help but think about one person and one college football program in specific. That person, I could not help but thinking about Jim Harbaugh, and I could not help but thinking about the Michigan Wolverines. And I already know what you're thinking. Torres, what are you? Uh, Michigan played at noon Eastern in Pennsylvania in snowy, rainy, icy conditions. Kansas plays Texas, you know, right before the stroke of midnight. What could one have to do with the other? And so let me explain. Let me get into it. And let's get into that, that, that Penn State-Michigan game because I don't really want to break down the game. I don't really want to talk about it. Nothing really changed in the bigger picture. Michigan came in at number six. We know if Michigan wants to get the monkey off their back, if they want to go to a Big Ten championship game, win the division, play for a college football playoff berth, they, one, have to beat Ohio State. And then, two, ultimately, they do have to hope for a little bit of luck. I mean, they have to hope that Michigan State loses to Ohio State next week. Otherwise, Michigan State would still have the tiebreaker. So I don't really want to spend too much time talking about the game because it just moves. It just kind of kicks the can down the road on Michigan. Everything is still in front of them, but they do have to beat Ohio State, and they do have to hope that Michigan State loses to Ohio State this weekend, and I just bring it up to say that I don't believe Michigan State is going to lose this weekend, and I don't believe that Michigan's going to beat Ohio State, so we don't need to talk about the game, but the game itself was really quickly, it was kind of the vintage hardball experience. Big game, road environment, you kind of know how it's going to go, and it kind of went exactly how we expected it to go. Michigan took the lead, Michigan's in control. Michigan blows the lead. Michigan has a turnover at the worst possible time. They're about to lose, but they actually win. And so one, let's just give Michigan, like for half a second, let's just say good job, Michigan, right? Like we don't need to belabor it. Penn State is now six and four. This isn't beating Alabama. This isn't beating Ohio State. This isn't beating Clemson or Georgia in a normal year. This is a good win against a good team that's probably a little bit better than the record indicates. But what struck me after that game was this. What Jim Harbaugh is doing is kind of incredible at Michigan, and it's kind of just a unique conversation unto itself, so let me explain. And I, I throw out these stats all the time, but I think they're important. This is now Jim Harbaugh's seventh year at Michigan, and really his sixth full year if you take out the COVID year a year ago. In those six full seasons, Jim Harbaugh with the win on, sat, on, win on Saturday against Penn State, Michigan is now 9-1 and one this year, which means that in six full seasons, Jim Harbaugh has now won nine games for a fifth time in six seasons. That's kind of incredible. Eight plus wins in all six seasons that he completed, uh, taking out the COVID year. And if he wins next Saturday against Maryland, independent of what happens against Ohio State, Jim Harbaugh will have won 10 games for the fourth time 
in six years as the head coach at Michigan in full season. For comparison's sake, how about this? Texas, since 2010, has won 10 games one time, and they've won nine games twice. So Texas, since 2010, two nine-win seasons, one ten-win season. Michigan, under Jim Harbaugh, they win next week. That will be five nine-win seasons since 2016, or 2015, excuse me, and it will be four 10-win seasons since 2016 for Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, and that's independent of beating Ohio State. That's independent of what happens in a bowl game. And so on Saturday, what kind of struck me about Harbaugh, and I promise at some point we'll bring it back to Texas, I realized Jim Harbaugh is kind of unto a class of his own in college football. I keep hearing that Jim Harbaugh is overrated. One thing I can tell you definitively, at this point, Jim Harbaugh is not overrated. You don't win nine-plus games a year every single year. You're averaging nine-plus wins a year in your full years at Michigan if you're overrated. But the weird thing is it doesn't make him underrated either. I don't think he's overrated because you can't win nine-plus games a year and be overrated. Um, But he's not also overrated because we don't think he's Nick Saban at this point. We don't think he's Urban Meyer at this point. We don't think he's maybe even Kirby Smart at this point. So he's not overrated. But he's not underrated either because he's 0-6 against Ohio State, or 0-5 against Ohio State, and 3-4 and against Michigan. They, of course, didn't play Ohio State last year. Otherwise, they would be 0-6 against them. So Jim Harbaugh is just kind of in this territory unto himself. You can't call him overrated because he's averaging 9-plus wins a year and could get his fourth 10-win season in six years, in six years next weekend. But he's obviously not underrated either. Because he doesn't beat Ohio State, doesn't beat Michigan, doesn't win the biggest games that he absolutely needs to. So that was my biggest takeaway from the Michigan game. Jim Harbaugh has officially reached his own category unto himself. What I would also say, though, and to bring it back to Texas, Michigan fans, if you lose to Ohio State in a couple weeks, you're going to have a really tough decision to make. You're going to have to decide, do we want to stick with this guy who continues to win big, continues to do everything that he's really supposed to do except beat the single biggest rival that we play and usually loses another big game somewhere along the way. I think the easy answer would be to say, you got to get rid of him. Can't beat your biggest rival. Can't beat Ohio State. He's got to go. And what I would say is, be careful. Go back and watch that celebration from Kansas on the field at Darrell Royal Stadium and ask yourself, would you rather be a Michigan fan right now Or would you rather be a Texas fan? And it's interesting. If you're a Michigan fan right now listening, and you're sitting there saying, I don't care. I don't care if he wins 10 games a year, if he can't beat Ohio State, if he's now can't beat Michigan State, they may have evolved past us as a program. We're out. I'm done with them. That's fine. I can't argue with you. Because ultimately, as the old saying goes, I always say it, Herm Edwards, you play to win the game, right? You play to win the game. And Jim Harbaugh doesn't win the games that matter. So if that's your argument, that's fine. And if your argument is, I don't know who the next head coach is, but I'm willing to take the chance, I can't argue with that either because while it is very likely that you won't get someone better than Jim Harbaugh that's winning nine-plus games a year but has never won the Big Ten East, never won the Big Ten, never made the college football playoff, at least as of right now as I record here prior to the Maryland game this weekend, there is also the possibility that like you do get the higher right. Um, you know, And every Michigan fan right now is sitting there saying, nobody thought that Mel Tucker was going to be this guy at Michigan State. 
Now he potentially has them in position to make the college football playoff in year two if they can beat Ohio State this weekend. Don't think they will, but if they can, then Michigan State potentially has the opportunity to make the college football playoff. So the idea that you can't get rid of Harbaugh because you can't get anybody better, who was Mel Tucker before he came to Michigan State? Now look at what Michigan State is. But what I would also say is just be really, really, really careful. One, we remember what life was like before Harbaugh. And two, there's some pretty good examples of what can happen if things go wrong. And I think the best example is the team I've just been talking about, the Texas Longhorns. Mac Brown averaged just under 10 wins a season for 16 years before he was ultimately fired. And I don't think you can argue that things were trending in the wrong direction under Mac Brown, but as bad as we remember the end of the Mac Brown era, his final three years at Texas, he still went eight and five, nine and four, and eight and five. And I'm not saying that he was Nick Saban. I'm not saying that he was whoever you deem to be the second or third best coach in college football. But what I am saying is 8-5, 9-4, doesn't look so bad after a day you lost to Kansas. And on top of that, he is now, we are now three coaches removed from when Mac Brown was fired. Charlie Strong was supposed to be the answer. He wasn't. Tom Herman was supposed to be the answer. He wasn't. Now we're already saying Steve Sarkeesian isn't the answer either at Texas. So what is it? I don't know, but I know that Mac Brown wasn't that bad. On top of that, there's other good historical examples too. Tennessee is now on its fifth head coach since they got rid of Philip Fulmer. And again, I'm not saying Philip Fulmer was the answer, but his second to last season, they won the SEC East and played in the SEC Championship game. That was in what, 2007, I believe it was, if my math is correct, if my memory is correct, when Phil Fulmer in his second to last season before he was let go as the head coach uh, of the Tennessee Vols, that he made the SEC championship game. He lost. They competed hard. They played well. They lost to LSU, which ultimately won the national championship that year. But you let him go, and they are now on coach number five after Philip Fulmer, after Lane Kiffin, Derek Dooley, Butch Jones, Jeremy Pruitt, and now Josh Heupel. They may have finally found the coach. And so I'm not saying that you have to stick with Harbaugh after this season if it doesn't work out, and I'm not saying if he goes seven and five next year that you don't reconsider it and I'm not even saying that you can't find the guy I mean there's good examples in recent history of moving off of a guy that's really successful and finding somebody better Mark Richt really bad a really good excuse me for a very long time never great Kirby Smart makes the national championship game in year two and has the best team in college football this year we don't know if they'll win the national championship and of course there's been other historical references including Ohio State when they got rid of John Cooper many years ago brought in Jim Trestle kind of started the run that they're on now but as I said, I just think it's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting on a day like Saturday to see the stark contrast between these two programs. Nine wins is now basically the, the basement under Jim Harbaugh. And the ceiling is kind of 10 wins. Um, and I'm not saying Michigan fans need to be happy about it. But as I said, would you rather be a Michigan fan this morning going for 10 wins on Saturday against Maryland? Or would you rather be a Texas fan on your fourth different coach since Mac Brown, third different coach since Mac Brown, excuse me, fighting, needing two wins just to get to any bowl game going forward. All right, that's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back, and I want to wrap with some college hoops. UCLA Nova, I was there on Friday. What a game that was. 
Um, and also Gonzaga, Texas, a few thoughts on that one. Not a good night to be a Longhorn on Saturday as the Longhorn football team obviously loses to Kansas and, of course, the Longhorn basketball team loses to Gonzaga. I will be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Final time today. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to wrap up. Uh, I really want to get to college basketball, really, is actually what I want to do. But before we do, there is one last note from college football, and that is that yet another head coach has been fired at the Power 5 level. It seems like every Sunday we got one of these bad boys. A few weeks ago it was Coach O at LSU. Then it was Gary Patterson at TCU. And now Jimmy Lake, the head coach at Washington, is officially out. And what I would say before I get into it, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I do want to do kind of a coaching carousel reset and recap on Wednesday's show. And so if you're not uh, already subscribed, make sure to listen to that show as I have some kind of new information on a lot of these jobs. I haven't really talked much about TCU, which is now open as well. LSU, USC, all that good stuff. We'll kind of hit on all of that. Um, is there any other candidates that we've missed through, through the weeks? Uh, but Washington is now open. And what I would say is, on one hand, kind of surprising. I will tell you this. It feels like it's about the shortest tenure of any head coach that I can ever remember um, without something like crazy happening, like an arrest or uh, major NCAA sanctions or whatever. But Jimmy Lake coached just 13 games. Now, part of it was he only coached four games last year because of COVID. I think Washington of every team that played, played the fewest games in Power 5 football just because of COVID and the Pac-12 started late and all that good stuff. But then there was this year, and really everything that could go wrong did. And I'm not saying he should have been fired. I'm not saying that he should have been let go. But you're coming off last year, and really, again, everything that could go wrong did. First of all, recruiting is in the tank. Washington is really struggling. That's a place that historically has recruited pretty well. Ironically, dating back to the Steve Sarkeesian days, we just talked about him a minute ago. Um, under Chris Peterson, they were kind of a, more of a developmental program. But I bring it up to say that recruiting was not in a very good place right now. Um, and the on-the-field win-loss results were not in a good place either. And it, it kind of kind of blew up where everything, again, that could go wrong in any given season did go wrong for Jimmy Lake. This particular season, first of all, it starts with a loss to Montana, a, a, a FCS school in the opener. The offense is terrible. From there, you have a loss to, uh, to Michigan. You get blown out on national TV, so that's bad. As the season goes on, you start to win games. But even when you win games, it's, it's about as bad as it could possibly go. You beat Arizona, which might be the worst Power 5 team in all of college football, but you need to rally late to do that. You need to rally late to beat Stanford in the final seconds. And then last week, a couple things happened. First, he insulted Oregon in the lead-up to their rivalry game. Remember, that was when he went to the podium and he was asked about recruiting against Oregon. And he basically said, we don't recruit against Oregon. There are a bunch of dummies over there. We recruit against good academic schools like USC, like Notre Dame, like places like that. Then gets beat by Washington, or gets beat by Oregon. And then in the middle of the game, he had the big incident where he kind of struck a player and shoved a player on the sideline. He's suspended for one game. I'll be honest, I really do kind of think that if it was Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney or Ryan Day or whoever, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But when your coach isn't working, when recruiting isn't working, when he's making, uh, you know, not the best moves forward publicly, um, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you have a small margin for error. And as soon as he was suspended, there was already speculation that he might not be back after this season and that he might ultimately be let go because everything that could go wrong did. Um, a few things on top of that. One, 
it appears as though he will be paid in full a $9.9 million buyout. They're not going to try to fire him with cause. And I will say, this guy was considered one of the elite young defensive coordinators in college football coming up. That is why Chris Peterson handed the reins to him in this program. And so I suspect that if he doesn't want to sit out for a few years and just collect paychecks from the University of Washington, he's going to get on very quickly as a defensive coordinator somewhere. And maybe even eventually as a young guy, maybe even work his way back into being a head coach uh, because he is only 44 years old. On top of that, what I would also say, um, I don't know that there's a great list of candidates right now for Washington. One, I think it's one of the better jobs in the Pac-12. One name that I would say to keep an eye on for this job, interestingly enough, is Justin Wilcox, the, the head coach at Cal. He was a defensive coordinator at Washington in the Steve Sarkeesian days. And for those wondering, why would he leave one Pac-12 North job for another? This is a guy that is very frustrated right, right now with the situation at Cal. Cal still has some of the strictest COVID restrictions in, in America. Uh, Berkeley, obviously, wherever, Santa Clara County or whatever it is, has some of the strictest COVID um, protocols in the country right now. Cal, of course, last week had their game against USC canceled because of COVID positives. This despite the fact that 99% of his program is vaccinated. He is very frustrated. He could be looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it appears as though this would be a place that makes sense and a place that would be interested in him because of his success at the school previously. On top of that, they're going to be paying a massive buyout to Jimmy Lake over these next couple years, so I suspect that the budget won't be big, but Justin Wilcox is the name that I would think about there. But like I said, Give it some time. Give it till Wednesday. I will have an updated coaching carousel uh, conversation on LSU, USC, TCU. Now Washington, which is the latest school to have a head coaching opening. With that said, let's, as promised, wrap with a little college basketball. And really, this is what this show is going to be going for. Uh, for people who are new to the show, I'm going to focus on college football, the vast majority of these shows, straight through the end of the college football regular season. we got two full weeks left in the regular season. We'll get into some bowl games. We'll get into some college football playoff. And then, obviously, with college football, we'll probably hit some transfer portal stuff and things like that. And then we will kind of ease our way into college basketball. And, of course, we will hit college basketball full speed ahead once college football season ends. But with that said, everybody who knows me knows I love college basketball. I obviously cover college basketball extensively. Um, and there were two marquee games this weekend, and so let's talk about them. The first of which I was at, which was UCLA and Villanova, a Friday night matchup of top five opponents tipped off at 11.30 Eastern. So I hope you guys stayed up late and watched that game. First of all, I will say this before we even get into the game itself. I said it on last Wednesday's show, recapping the Champions Classic. It is so great to have fans back in the stands. It was so great to be at a jam-packed Pauley Pavilion. The place was rocking. The fans got there. The fans made that, that environment great. And Mick Cronin even talked about the fact that this is what college basketball is all about. Having fans in the stands, yelling, screaming, home, road, whatever. Ironically, Chris Beard talked about it even after losing to Gonzaga on Saturday night. How great it was to have fans back in the stands and I'll also say this I give UCLA a ton of credit too okay so I've lived in Los Angeles for about a decade now I've been going to games at Pauley Pavilion the last six seven eight years whatever it is and really up until about the last year or two UCLA was one of the most stoic boring old school athletic departments that you could ever find and it was reflected in the game day experience at UCLA. I know I'm boring most of you but this is some inside college sports stuff that I know a lot of you guys like and what I would say is that up until about two years ago UCLA was run 
like it was 1968 and John Wooden was still patrolling the sidelines. Um, you know, just the atmosphere wasn't great. The energy wasn't great. There was no creativity. There was no nothing. And so about two years ago, UCLA got a new AD. His name is Martin Jarmond. He came from Boston College. Boston College, the, the big thing he did there was hire Jeff Halfley, the young football coach who's having a lot of success at Boston College. And it felt like a completely different vibe at UCLA on Saturday. Um, or excuse me, Friday night into Saturday for many of you on the East Coast. But it, at Pauley Pavilion, first of all, they had this big kind of light and laser show at introductions. Now, for those of you who go to games at Rupp Arena or Cameron or a lot of these other arenas, that's stuff that you guys have been doing for years. I mean, I went to a game at Rupp Arena in 2012 when Anthony Davis was there and there was lights and fireworks and all that good stuff. But at UCLA, that is brand new. So I thought that was cool for people who watch the game on TV. Michael Buffer was there. Let's get ready to rumble. It isn't cheap to bring that guy in. So credit to UCLA. This was a big game. It was big for the athletic department. It was big for the program. It was a national stage that was kind of a standalone game where people were going to be looking at UCLA. And I thought that they largely delivered. It was so fun to be in the stands there. In terms of the game itself, um, you know what I would say is, listen, I told you coming into the season, UCLA was going to be really good. I got a lot of pushback. A lot of you said that, oh, you know, they just got hot in the NCAA tournament. And I said, that's not really fair. That's not really fair because if you know what happened at UCLA last year, you know that their best player, Chris Smith, got hurt in the middle of the year. Johnny Juzang had, of course, transferred in. And when Chris Smith went down and Johnny Juzang became the guy, there was a period of acclimation. It took a while. The team struggled down the stretch. The story was that they had lost their final four games heading into the NCAA tournament. But if you remember, in those four games, they lost two four teams that ended up making the NCAA tournament, three who made the Sweet 16, and two in USC and Oregon State who made the Elite Eight. So it wasn't that they were bad all year. It was that they, they faced a really hard schedule down the stretch, and they got hot in the NCAA tournament. And I said, this team is going to be really good. They are worthy of a number one, number two, number three ranking nationally going into the season and expect big things from them. With that said, I kind of don't know how they won. But they kind of showed the resilience. I don't know how they won Friday against Villanova, but they kind of showed the resiliency that they have shown throughout that NCAA tournament run last year. And they largely did the same on Friday night against Villanova. Believe it or not, this was a team that was down 10 with nine minutes to go and really clamped down and played incredible basketball to rally to force overtime and to win in overtime. Uh, if you watch the game, what stood out to me really watching the game from the press box was a couple things. First of all, I know we like to poke fun at Mick Cronin and what do you do at Cincinnati and all those early NCAA tournament losses. He coached his butt off in the final seven or eight minutes of that game, okay? Um, you know, he went offense for defense quite a bit. Johnny Juzang would make a basket. He'd quickly pull him out, put in a kid named Jalen Clark, who he kind of called his old-school Cincinnati kind of player. Uh, he put in a kid named Peyton Watson, a freshman defensive player. And they made a bunch of stops late to get themselves back into the game. They held Villanova to four points in the final eight minutes of the game to force overtime where they ultimately won. And so when I look at that game, when I look at how it went down, I would just say that it was a lot of talent. I think UCLA is really good. I think they're very athletic on the wing, and I do think their size and athleticism gave uh, Villanova problems, especially late in the game when, Villano when UCLA really started focusing on going offense for defense. But the team that gave everybody fits in the NCAA tournament, that was the team that I saw on Friday night, only with more confidence than they played with last year. And I'm not going to break down the whole depth chart, but they got five or six wings that really create problems defensively for other teams. I mentioned two of them. 
Uh, Jalen Clark, junkyard dog kind of player. Peyton Watson came off the bench as a freshman, potential one-and-done type player. And on top of that, David Singleton, Jules Bernard role players. Um, you know, Jaime Jaquez, kind of a bigger wing, switchable, can kind of guard two through five. And so this is just a really good team, and they are going to continue to be a good team all year. And the coaching is really, really good under Mick Cronin. Like I said, I don't think he gets enough credit because he was at Cincinnati for so long, but this guy just pulled all the right strings. UCLA gets the win. And I'm telling you, they're, they're, they're a legitimate top five team and they're a legitimate national championship contender. And I think the thing that they have is a mental toughness to them, which I find funny, right? Because that was the story for years. UCLA, all these five stars, they had, they, there was no mental toughness to them. Now you look at them, they're about as mentally tough as anybody. Make that Final Four run, have all those big rallies during the, that NCAA tournament run, nearly beat Gonzaga. This is a very, very confident team. And I'm looking forward to this. I see UCLA again in about 10 days from now, eight days from now, as a matter of fact. They play Gonzaga in Vegas next Tuesday night, which I believe is the 23rd, I want to say, of November. And I'm really, really, really excited. I think they're going to give Gonzaga fits, of course, dating back to their, their game last year against Gonzaga. But again, my biggest takeaway, credit to Mick Cronin, credit to the UCLA staff, credit to the UCLA players. This is a real national championship contender, people. They, that win was about as impressive as you can get. Uh, obviously, Duke has a big win. Gonzaga has a big one. We'll get to Gonzaga in a minute. But great, great, great win for UCLA to open the season. Quickly, I'll get to Villanova, and I'll just say this. They were the better team for about 36, 37 minutes of this game. I do think they ran out of gas. A couple things that stand out with Villanova on the positive. I have seen them play before, but let me just tell you, and I'm going to nerd out on college basketball for a second. They are about the most fundamentally gifted team that I've ever seen and the most fundamentally well-coached team I've ever seen. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know, I was talking to Mike Schmitz, the ESPN NBA draft analyst, and I, I don't want to put him on the spot by sharing our private conversation, but I don't think he'll mind because I'm sure it's probably something that he said on the broadcast. But I said to him, I said, Mike, you travel all over the world watching basketball. You, you watch all these college basketball programs in person. Is there a better team fundamentally in college basketball than Villanova? And he said, absolutely not. It's not even close. And what stood out to me about Villanova, they are so smart. They always make the right decision at the right time. They're just a beautiful thing to watch. If you guys are high school coaches or middle school coaches, watch them. Watch what they do. It was unbelievable. I'll just give you a few examples. For, <coughs> excuse me. First of all, there was a play uh, early in the game that just struck me as this is vintage Villanova. There was a little bit of a pick and roll. There was a switch on the pick and roll. One of Villanova's quote-unquote big guys, about 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he has Tiger Campbell, UCLA's guard on him. Villanova's uh, big man immediately sprints to the paint, knows he has a mismatch, catches the ball. He's got a 5'9 guy defending him. Layup, no problem. That's not something that you learn overnight. That is something that comes with drilling and drilling and drilling, practicing and practicing and practicing, and that is exactly what we saw from Villanova on Friday night. What I would also say on top of that, um, you know, you just look at how they move the ball, how they play on offense, the efficiency of their shots. It's unbelievable. I mean, I tweeted it out. It's like every possession, it's just pump fake drive, pump fake drive, pump fake drive, and then all of a sudden you pass it around the perimeter enough, you get a wide open three-pointer, and I don't think it's coincidence that this has been one of the most consistent programs in college basketball over the last decade or so. They are just so beautiful to watch in person. With that said, what also stood out to me about this year's specific team, um, they're not very athletic, and if you can kind of handle the the uh, you if you can handle the fundamental aspect of it, they are beatable. 
especially because they don't have anybody anybody big down low. And when I put out my preseason rankings and my top 25, I think I had Villanova at 3, 4, somewhere in there. Um, and a lot of you said to me, you're like, dude, they don't have a big guy. What are you talking about? They really only had one big guy last year. His name was Jeremiah Robinson Earl. He is now with the Oklahoma City Thunder. And a lot of you said, like, dude, Torres, I love you, but they don't have a big man. And I'll give you guys credit. You guys called that out months ago. And that came to fruition on on Friday night against UCLA because that was one situation where when I watched that game, it really felt like UCLA with about three minutes to go in regulation realized they got nobody down low. Villanova, who for people who do not know, started a 6'8 forward named Eric Dixon, a 6'7 forward named Brandon Slater. And those are really their only two low post presences. And so UCLA started to expose that late. UCLA killed them on the boards plus 16. And by the time we got to overtime, Villanova ran out of gas. So what I would say is that sometimes there are games where neither team should have to lose. Um, and this was one of them. This was just one where, you know, either team could have won. Villanova probably, honestly, should have won. But UCLA did what they needed to do late and overwhelmed them in overtime. But just a great game. And lastly, let me say this about th this game specifically. And that's this. I criticize ESPN for a lot. I was crushing them the other night during the Champions Classic over something, but what I will also say, this was just a great move by ESPN. 11.30 Eastern tip-off. I know many of you couldn't stay up, but I know many of you did try to stay up, and I just thought it was a perfect window, right? Most college football is done by then. Um, it's obviously not a college football Saturday. It's not an NFL Sunday. It's not an NFL Thursday where we now have NFL Thursday night games. There's not very many windows in November where you can put on college basketball and it will have the nation's attention. And this felt like one of them. So I know it was a late start, but I thought it was great to have this late game, two top five teams, Michael Buffer in the building, as I just talked about. It felt big. It was big. It was an event. This is what college basketball needs to do. I was frustrated that after the Champions Classic on Tuesday, there were no real big games on Wednesday, Thursday to kind of capitalize on the momentum from Kentucky, Duke, and Michigan State, Kansas. But I did think that ESPN did a good job of getting this game on air for everybody to watch, everybody to enjoy, and for everybody to have, uh, you know, a moment to appreciate and enjoy college basketball on Friday night. I mean, I had even non-college basketball people telling me how much they enjoyed that one, so credit to ESPN. Finally... Saturday night, another top five matchup, Gonzaga, Texas. And I was hosting radio when this game happened, but I actually went back and watched it early Sunday before I recorded this podcast. Uh, Gonzaga beats Texas 86-74, to and let me say this. I do it every year, and you guys are going to say, I already know where you're going with this, Torres, but every single year. I know Mark Few hasn't won a national championship. I know they don't play in the toughest conference. But I can't think of any program that year in and year out, it does not matter who they lose, they always come out locked, loaded, and ready to go. This is a program that, keep in mind, they lost their entire starting backcourt, including two first-round draft picks, Jalen Suggs, number six pick or five pick or whatever it was, the Orlando Magic, Corey Kispert, first-round lottery pick to the Washington Wizards. Also lost my buddy, Joel, aye, aye. and then on top of that, um, they lost some other key players off last year's team as well that played in the national championship game and ultimately lost to Baylor. And so I know this team still hasn't won a national championship. I know that it frustrates a lot of you. I know that you think they're overrated. I don't know how you could possibly be overrated when you go 31-1 like they did last year. But this was a program that coming into today, uh, coming into this season, they lost three starters off last year's national championship runner-up. And I kind of thought like, 
you know, they're going to take a step back to start the season. You've heard me talk about it. What did I say on what it was at last Tuesday's show, the college basketball preview show? I said, I think this is a team that's a little bit overrated coming into the season. Um, and instead, and when I said overrated, I thought they were more like a 28-6 and six team as opposed to a 33-2 and two team. But they go, they play Texas, and they absolutely destroy them. And the story of the game was Drew Timmy. Uh, he finished with 37 points. He was everybody's preseason national player of the year. I do have Hunter Dickinson, but most people had Drew Timmy uh, as their national player of the year. And the guy delivered. And the guy is, I know he's limited, and I know Baylor gave him problems in the national championship game last year, but he was the leading scorer and rebounder on a 31-1 team that had multiple lottery picks last year. And he comes out, and it's like he didn't miss a beat with 37 points against Texas the other night. I didn't think Texas did the greatest job defending him, which we'll get into in a minute, but it was just so incredible to watch Gonzaga lose three players off last year's Final Four team that are all playing in the NBA right now, and it's like they didn't even miss a beat. The offense runs the same, ball screens, drive, kick, kind of what I was saying with Villanova. Over-dribbling, or excuse me, uh, overpassing, communicating, cutting, moving. It's just incredible to watch this team on a week-in, week-out basis. I don't think Drew Timmy, as a matter of fact, gets enough credit for his passing. When Texas finally realized we can't guard him with one player, he started passing out of the post, and he was hitting guys wide open for jump shots. So for, for Gonzaga, I don't know what else there is to say. It is just incredible to see this program that, by the way, did not have Mark Few on the sideline for their season opener the other night. They lost, I should mention, by the way, as well, uh, two assistant coaches, one of which, um, you know, one of which Tommy Lloyd was Mark Few's longtime assistant. He's now the head coach at Gonzaga. And it's like they didn't miss a beat. They shouldn't look this good early. I know how being at home helped. And the crazy thing was they didn't really get much from Chet Holmgren. Chet Holmgren, to his credit, I thought uh, defended the paint well. But he didn't statistically put up a huge monstrous night as he finished the night against Texas with only two points and only five rebounds. He did have two blocks and he did alter a bunch of other ones. And I actually think Chet Holmgren's biggest impact will be on the defensive end this year more than it'll be on the offensive end. But for Villan for, for I keep calling him Villanova, for Gonzaga to come out, lose three starting guards, three three players that are in the NBA and still put up 86 points against Texas. Uh, it was absolutely unbelievable. And this is going to be a really, really good team. Now I'll see them twice in person over the next couple weeks. I'll see them at that UCLA game on Tuesday, the 23rd. I will then see them on Black Friday when they face off against Duke on Black Friday night. And so I'm really excited, but I'll tell you, I came away equally impressed. I still, I still think there's some teams that are better than them. I'm not picking them to, to win the national championship. I'm not changing my preseason picks. But what I would also say is it's just unbelievable to see this program not miss a beat after everything they lost last year. And then finally, there's Texas. And listen, no one has led the Texas hype train more than me. Um, but it was really interesting because even at the UCLA game, I was talking to a few reporters that had kind of seen Texas in person. They said, you know, they'll get there but they're not there yet. And that was my big thing watching Texas on Saturday night. I was technically watching them Sunday morning, but watching them play Gonzaga on Saturday night is Gonzaga is clearly a good program. Texas looks like a, a, a group of good individuals that have a chance to be a good team, but aren't there yet. First of all, defensively, they were just completely lost. And I don't want to bore you with X's and O's defense stuff. I'm talking about Villanova's ball fakes, and I'm talking about Drew Timmy's footwork. Now I'm talking about uh, Texas's uh, uh, defense. But Gonzaga just destroyed them defensively. I mean, Gonzaga finished the game shooting 54% from the field, 
uh, 37% from three and had 17 assists on 32 made field goals. And what was just incredible about Gonzaga was Texas just seemed to step behind the whole game. First of all, their single cover in Drew Timmy. He had like literally 13 points in like the first eight minutes of the game. They finally start doubling him. That's when he's kicking out. He's hitting up guys wide open for threes. But also Texas with all those experienced college basketball players, too many offense, too many defensive breakdowns where guards were just getting into the lane. Guards were getting wide open shots. And I just thought it wasn't a very good effort overall from Texas. And it was funny because as I watched the game on Sunday, coming out of it, I had trouble finding any positives for Texas coming out of this game. Now, I did think there were some. A kid named Jace Febris played well off the bench. There's a kid named Trey Mitchell that came in from uh, from UMass who I thought had moments in the paint. But this is going to be a program very much work in progress. First of all, as we all know, six transfers, really seven if you include Avery Benson who followed Chris, Chris Beard from Texas Tech. So seven transfers over, six that are going to play. And one of them, Dylan Disu, probably their best low post player, is not playing right now. He is still recovering from surgery. So listen, I know it's easy to overreact to night one. I know it's easy to say they were completely outclassed by Gonzaga, and I don't even necessarily think you're wrong in saying that. But what I would say is this is going to be a good team under Chris Beard. This is going to be a good program under Chris Beard. It is going to take a little bit of time, but I do believe uh, that Texas is going to be fine. Excuse me, but credit to Texas. Credit to Gonzaga for putting on a new, uh, a, a true road environment. Same with UCLA and Villanova. I was obviously not at the Gonzaga-Texas game, but the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. Uh, and I'm so glad that college basketball put these two games on this weekend. And I can't wait to keep talking college basketball with you guys all fall long into the winter and, of course, into March and beyond. That said, I think I've talked enough for today. So I'm going to get out of here before I do. I want to remind you guys, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Would you please? iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you don't like, what you like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com also Aaron Torres online for all my writing if you love college football you like the little betting angle of it the college football betting show with Aaron Torres easy to find and I think that's it shout out to Torrent Craig oh one more thing I do not know yet what my taping schedule will be next week the week of Thanksgiving cannot believe that we are what 10 days away from Thanksgiving at this point but we are I will keep you posted as I have more information there but with that said you know what I gotta say shout out to Torrent Craig shout out to Rachel who hates my voice shout out to Steve Sarkeesian leave this man alone I will be back on Wednesday fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast coming until then everybody have a great Monday Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.